This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk computers, tech, the internet, all the fun stuff that matters to you most on a Wednesday night at 7.05pm. Uh, tonight on the show, it is Dan Salmon. Dan, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good as well. Uh, Laura Summer, thanks for being here. Hey there. Lovely to be here. Uh, we've got a very good show coming your way. Uh, we'll get to it uh, in just a moment. Um, if you make stuff on the web, you're probably working in JavaScript at some point. Uh, JS Conference is one of the world's biggest gatherings for people who code. It's coming to Melbourne later this year. Uh, we talk with the team behind the event on what matters to those working with JS right now and some of the things that will be coming through in the conference. The Digital Inclusion Index um, sounds important. It's brand new. That's why you've not heard of it. Uh, it's just been released. The first report, effectively, on Australia's digital maturity, uh, conducted by the Swinburne Institute of Social Research, um, uh, along with the Swinburne University of Technology, uh, Centre for Social Impact, Roy Morgan Research, and one of the big telcos. Um, it's the most comprehensive national assessment of where we are uh, as a nation uh, in terms of our, uh, I guess, digital maturity. Uh, we'll speak with lead researcher Professor Justin Thomas to find out Basically, are we okay? Do we have enough internet? Um, do the right people have access to it? Um, what are we doing with it? Um, those kinds of things. But before we do get to those chats, we're going to take a look at what's making news um, here and around the world. Um, specifically in Europe, there's been some interesting stuff going on over there, Dan. What can you tell us? Yeah, um, big news out of Ireland. Um, Apple, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say, are the largest company in the world and I uh, know for a fact that there are a few of their devices here in this uh, room right now, have been ordered by the European Union to pay $13 billion of back taxes. Now, in our money, that's $19 billion Australian dollars. So not $13 billion euros, sorry. $19 billion Australian dollars. I reckon if you were the accountant at the EU, you'd be like, let's just send out an invoice for that one. This looks good. Yeah. Like, you'd go to lunch early, wouldn't you? Absolutely. And I mean, look, it's it's a very grey area. Ireland and, or the Republic of Ireland and Apple have come to an agreement outside of what is considered to be, I suppose, um, accepted within the EU and the EU being a large economic grouping of countries that have somewhat disparate um, economic laws. Um, it's, it is really very much a grey area. Ireland um, built a a very huge economy in the last 15 years on being friendly to tech startups, being friendly to tech companies, um, and generally having a low tax rate. There are a lot of tech, huge tech companies that are based in Ireland, and so the uh, implications for this are, are massive. Ireland um, and the Apple have said that they're both going to be fighting this, and um, I, I imagine that there, there, are, there are talks of other companies that are based um, on the Emerald Isle following suit. It is, it is very much a kind of vexed question. I mean, do we, do we like the fact that Apple are able to use the money that they're not paying taxes on innovation? Is, does it mean that we're getting a better product? Does it mean that Tim Cook's coffers are being, uh, you know, lined a bit more? Is it, is it fair to the people of Ireland that they're not getting this kind of tax? Is it fair to the EU? Guys, what, I'd love to hear your opinions. I, personally, I don't think... Uh, if, you, if you had to ask me who's going to spend uh, my money 
wisely and better if I was a, a, an Irish person. Uh, I would put a bit of stock in Apple. I, I would like better products. I would like um, faster services. I would like a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm not sure government's the best place to, to spend um, basically the windfall from our faith in, in, a, in a, what is a fairly good product company. Um, having said that, Apple do not care about a whole bunch of services and, and um, do not have a, a vested interest in the people of Ireland or, or the EU. Um, they have no regulatory obligation to be yeah. clear. Like they don't have any actual obligations towards the people of Ireland. And as I understand it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but I understand that the way they've basically avoided paying this tax is by routing their profit offshore immediately, right? So mm. like they're just no saying money goes in no there. money goes in. And, yeah. you know, I, I think if you broke that down to something like a manufacturing company, like, and you said, okay, Ford is manufacturing in Australia, um, but like their, their profit is automatically going to go offshore to Indonesia and they're mm. not going to pay any tax on it. I think everyone would be really up in arms. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily on board with like hitting with them with a hefty fee because like ultimately you don't want to like break the services and or, or like you know mm. break down the company and mm. what it provides for the country but at the same time um, it does need a bit of a rethink in my view I think perhaps a way that they could um, approach this is maybe um, a, a bit of creep upon recovering some of that money mm-hmm. so um, don't shock them all in one go don't mm-hmm. make them sort of restructure how they do their business and don't um, uh, don't um, hurt them too much but um, it, it, it probably is uh, something that needs a, a bit of balancing out mm-hmm. having said that 13 billion euros is a drop in the ocean to what apple's actually worth yeah. like that they would make that kind of money in a week yeah yeah, <laughs> maybe not. But yeah, um, another thing that uh, has been uh, quite surprising uh, this week um, is um, a bit of interference we we're talking about from uh, from outer space. Um, the scientists have detected strong signals. Uh, could this be alien life? Um, which is interesting. So, a, a radio telescope operating in a, a far flung corner of Russia um, have picked up. Uh, well, I guess you could call it static or, or, or some kind of um, weird interference from a 6.3 billion year old star known as HD 164595. That's a romantic name. Um, it is mm. found in the Hercules constellation about 95 uh, light years uh, from Earth, which is pretty close. Um, the star is known to have at least one planet and potentially more. Um, so picked up, it probably will be a little while to um, before we can figure out, you know, is this somebody saying hello? Are we getting a, a text message? Um, I really I hope we are. I, I, I'm imagining, like, have you, um, uh, this could be a really bad reference, but the movie Contact. Yes, that's <laughs> totally where my mind went. Yeah, yeah. Where, where they foster through the, like, wormhole. Yeah, exactly. And, and it turns out that we're receiving rebroadcasts of, like, Nazi rallies from 70 years ago. You never know. It could be that. It could be that. I want to believe. Did you notice that it was actually detected back in May of last year, and it's only just come to light recently because of um, there was a presentation from an Italian guy, and that happened to make like the world news. But it's funny to me that like some of this science stuff gets very much under the radar, and then all of a sudden someone sees a presentation or someone goes to an event and is like, oh, hey, maybe everyone should be excited about this. It surfaces in strange ways, doesn't mm, it? Yeah, for sure. Um, a bit of older news that um, has been confirmed or um, has legitimacy now um, relates to Dropbox. What's What's been going on there, Laura? Well, there's been a little bit of um, kerfuffle, shall we say, around Dropbox security recently, and I think pretty much everyone who's a user has received an email saying something to the effect of, could you please update your password? And, you know, obviously that always um, rings alarm bells for us. So there has been some confirmation now that there was, in fact, a breach and that quite a lot of um, passwords have been surfaced on the Internet. I think the number is over 68 million, so that's quite a lot. 
Um, you know, I suppose... Maybe go and change your Dropbox password. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably good advice. It's probably good advice for everybody. Also, just public service announcement. If you use 1Password globally, please stop doing that. Go get a password manager, something like 1Pass or any of the many of them that are out there, and set some hard passwords, passwords that you cannot remember in your brain because it means it's much less likely to be hacked. Absolutely. Um, everyone should be using complex passwords, though I do, mm. yeah, it is pretty frustrating when you're trying to log on on your phone somewhere and you're like, mm. going complex password on that one. But you can do the same. I, I have one pass on my phone as well, and I just log into that and then go and copy your passwords across. And the nice thing about that is it obscures your password as well, so no one's, like, looking over your shoulder as you type on your phone looking at, like, the big letters coming up, right? Mm. So that's actually quite good. Yeah, I'm just harking back to the days when you, had, when you had a difficult password and you just needed to know muscle memory to get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just making complex signals to, to people in the, in the room here. No, it is, in fact, loading very slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, no, here it is. Um, well, one of the good bits of news um, that we can share with you is that uh, a, a piece of research in the UK has come out um, to show that you can, in fact, teach computers to learn from observation, uh, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Um, uh, it well, is. Would you it like is, to talk about this? Yeah. yeah, well, it's it's a really fascinating area. It's related to machine learning or deep neural nets, if that's a thing you're familiar with. Um, and it's actually a less monitored or less managed form of learning than standard neural nets, which is really fascinating. Um, as I understand the modeling, and like, please don't quote me because I am by no means like a data scientist, but as I understand it, you have an agent swarm, and then you have a um, measuring agent which is saying, how close is this to the original thing and then you have the computer saying I'm going to try and look at that and figure out what the patterns are and then reproduce that so so you essentially have mimicry and you know what it made me think of do you know that stupid thing with like the old, the, the grown ups following toddlers doing toddlerography like I feel like that's what it would be like but in computer terms like you'd have this like computer that's like ooh go here now roughly make this shape and then like as it iterates it gets better and better um, and it is actually a really fascinating thing because it gets kind of close to that human concept of inference, right? Like this idea that you can look at a thing and contextualize it and like work out kind of roughly what it is, which is a very hard part of intelligence to actually reproduce in computing. It is um, it is really interesting for a lot of ways, or in a lot of ways as well, um, putting computers to work to learn things that um, we struggle with or are not important for human brains, which are sort of mm-hmm. more complex and diverse and so forth, um, is really good. So um, a lot of those problems and challenges or experiments that um, are too uh, time-consuming or, or too, I guess, low value for, mm. for human brains um, is really important. Additionally, it also requires less human um, interference and therefore less human bias because yes. anytime we are training a model or what we're giving it that sort of reward that that is correct, we're automatically inputting some of our own biases into the process. So, like, the more that the computer can work it out itself, the more objective it's going to be, which is actually quite an interesting thing to watch. Uh, hopefully, um, the good stuff will come out first. I always think about mm-hmm. sort of some of the sci-fi theory around this when we start teaching computers stuff. But um, yeah, yeah, it, it feels really, it feels really positive. I've got a whole bunch of stuff that I'd like them to be doing at home involving housework mm-hmm. and learning patterns oh, yeah. in in my socks and how to arrange those in. Just as long as that's all they do. Dude, I want awesome. a laundry folder. Give me a robot laundry folder tomorrow. Please. I'm pretty sure they already exist. Mm-hmm. If they have laundry, if they have letter folders, they definitely have laundry folders. I think they're in in progress. I think ah. in the next five years. We'll see them. Nice. 
hey, if you work in the web, if you make stuff, uh, if you do stuff, which we hope you do, um, you probably have some knowledge of JavaScript, and you probably want to get together with people to talk about that uh, if you have the opportunity. Uh, we are joined in studio now by organizers for JS Conference, um, Ben Schwartz and Caroline Sure, I'm going to get this wrong. You can you can you can correct me. Um, that's all right. It's stood. Stood. I, I knew I was going to get it. I knew well. I was going to get it wrong. You did <laughs> I got well. it right out there. Um, guys, thanks for coming in. Um, welcome to Triple R. Hey, thanks. Thank you. Uh, so the conference is uh, in the latter part of the year, but um, we couldn't wait that long, so we wanted to get you in a, a little bit earlier. Um, what are you guys most excited to talk about in terms of um, JavaScript at the conference this year? Yeah, so um, this is our mm, fourth year, kind of, of running this event here in Australia. Uh, it's the Australian chapter of a conference that started uh, in the U.S., um, we have a sister event in Germany uh, as well. So we, we run CSSConf and we run JSConf uh, for about 300 people here in Melbourne. Um, and it's an event that I guess we, you know, for, for us, it's we're working with the people from Germany and we're working. And hello to uh, hello to Christina. She's listening now, actually. But, um, yeah, we're working with them, and it's kind of a family event in, in many ways. We're all trying to achieve the same thing as a group, and we're all, we all feel very responsible for the work that we do together. And what do you think unifies people around JavaScript right now? What are the – it's night one uh, at the conference, and you're all at the bar uh, with a beer. What are you all talking about at the moment, do you think? Um, I don't know. I think it's it's some kind of a, a sense of community and uh, and getting together and, and meeting those other people that, you know, you have this, this – uh, affinity with for, for whatever reason that you, you sit in front of a computer for 10 hours a day for, for whatever reason that you do and you, you build things um, and sometimes I'm, I think maybe we don't know why. There's definitely a lot of opinionated conversations happening at parties and during conferences as well but I think in Melbourne especially it's just exactly that. It's just kind of happiness of being together and you know at the event because I feel like um, there are not as many conferences in Australia as there are in Europe or US. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's getting bigger now, but certainly um, we don't have quite the sort of multiplicity of events and styles of events. Um, I went to, to CSSConf last year, and one thing that really struck me about the event is just how warm and friendly and different it is. Like, it really has a different vibe to a lot of other tech events I've been to. Um, and I know you guys have done a lot of work to try and nurture that. So, so maybe chat a little bit about why you think it can be hard to get that culture and what you've done to, to try and get there. Hmm. Sure. Um, it's a very complex topic, and I mm. think I could literally talk for hours about that, but um, I feel like there are two types of conferences. One of them are events that are run in hotels, and they have random catering that's provided by the venue, and they don't really make an effort to make it feel personal or homey and friendly. Mm -hmm. um, they're very really corporate in terms of both pricing for attendance and just the presence of the sponsors is very prominent. So it feels kind of not personal, and it feels just... To me, it feels just wrong. Mm -hmm. But um, the JS conference uses kind of family of events um, worldwide because there are many of them at this point and families growing um, really um, tries to not only not have very strong presence of sponsors, of course we need them, but um, we try not to make it as prominent. And we, I think one of the 
reasons why the events are so good is our um, pursuit of diversity and inclusion is something that we really care about. And we've been really, really trying to figure that out here in Melbourne this year. And we've put a lot of work, especially in our um, call for speakers process, um, to nurture that. Mm-hmm. Because um, we know that our industry is male-dominated, and we really didn't want it to buy into that culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really want everyone to feel work- welcome at our events. So mm-hmm. um, that's something that we've been really uh, kind of focusing on, just trying to define processes that will help us to have more people that normally wouldn't attend so we have greater diversity. There seems to be, I, I guess, two um, unifying themes for um, jazz conference around the world is um, that social aspect, getting people from out behind the screens and talking together, which is really important as kind of workers that can be isolated and focused on, on, on screens. But the other one that uh, I noticed on the, the sort of global side that's really interesting is uh, providing a point of view on um, what is thought to be conceivable with, with JS. So um, I guess... For the majority of us, most of the stuff we do is fairly similar stuff to what we did the day before or the day before that. But we're always looking for different things to be doing, better ways to to apply the language. How do you guys address that in in the conference here in Melbourne? Um, I think we, you know, we we try to bring in people who do performance. Uh, We try to bring in people who do fun and ridiculous things that make absolutely no sense in in any other context other than fun. Um, And, you know, I think having a really sort of balanced program between between something practical and something that's just because we like it. Um, You know, I I guess we're lucky that we get to curate it in in that way. Um, And it it suits our own interests um, creatively, I guess. Is there sort of anything on the schedule or things that you're working on without sort of giving too much of the the schedule away around things that are just completely ridiculous and fun? Um, Um, We we can always do with a bit of that. I know the guys just just, um, sent out all of the accepted um, talks for this conference, and I'm not sure that they're public yet. I don't know. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay, so can we get a preview? Yeah, like it's practically tomorrow. Yeah, I don't know. What, what can you remember that's great? Um, well, I don't, great. I don't want to give up any specifics. Um, but definitely what I can say is when you're reading through those proposals, and we had, as far as I remember, 500 this year, and last year we had 200. 20. So wow. it's basically twice the amount of proposals. And people wrote really lengthy proposals. So you go through that, through that list without um, any information about the person and you see the trends about what people want to talk about. So you see a bunch of React stuff. You see a bunch of Angular stuff that's really popular within uh, people who want to be speakers. Um, we've seen a lot of stuff that's connected to music and um, VR as well. So we've seen patterns, but we don't necessarily buy in on every single pattern like we don't really want framework talks because we want we want people to have more um, practical knowledge not necessarily particular there's one tool that someone picked so we don't really buy into particular tools but yeah we we have some we have some stuff connected to AV, I would say. We have, we are thinking about having some fun stuff. Yeah, we, we, we have one uh, where the presenter is doing stuff with MIDI uh, using JavaScript in the browser. And so it's somewhere between uh, a technical presentation and performance. Uh, and we're super excited for, for talks like that. Mm-hmm. That sounds like lots of fun. I know there, there's been a little bit of talk about the web getting less fun and exciting since Flash 
died and like the frameworks kind of took over. So I think it's nice to see some of these experiments and these fun things and these non-standard navigation experiments start to rise up again. Um, yeah, I, I definitely want to see um, a lot more people designing websites that are a bit wild and wacky and not sort of bootstrap looking. Yeah. I mean, this year particularly, uh, it felt like we read a hundred proposals about VR mm. in, the, in the browser. So people are people are starting to experiment with that and they're you know, buying hardware and getting really excited about it. So um, I don't know if we ended up with any in our program, even though we've reviewed so many. But um, yeah, mm. definitely a theme. As kind of um, attendees at your own conference, what do you guys get excited about seeing? Like, so putting aside the responsibility and the sort of curation of kind of a, a broad church, um, what, what do you guys geek out to? Honestly, I, I don't see any of it. Um, I, uh, I usually run around the entire time and just try to make sure everything's good <laughs> for, uh, you know, uh, 10 hours a day. Um, I, the thing that I usually, you know, really, really super enjoy is, you know, we bring people from the absolute far corners of the, of the globe, uh, and we, we spare no expense in doing that. And we, we feel the responsibility to make sure they have a good time in Melbourne and a good time in Australia and, you know, and at our event as well. You know, it's kind of like we feel like it's a house party where everyone should, you know, everyone should feel welcome there. Um, so personally, it's just the relationships that we've formed with the speakers uh, and the attendees. Um, it's it's more of a, a personal thing, I guess. Carolina, do you have a thing that you? Yeah, I, I was just googling to myself because um, I heard this metaphor that actually my friend told me when we were chatting about running conferences and why we do it in general. She said, "So uh, basically, running a conference is like running a wedding, and everyone is a bride and a groom." Like exactly, that's what it is. <laughs> and to be honest, I'm definitely looking forward to the talks. We really worked hard to have a diverse lineup in terms of actually in all of the aspects of the word diversity and, and inclusion as well. Um, I'm, I'm definitely interested in all of the topics, but um, what I'm more interested in is just seeing people being happy because they are together with other people within the community and chatting and having a great time because the talk was great or they had a bagel for breakfast and that was great or like they had a donut that was amazing and all of these little pieces that formed the experience of a conference because a lot of tech conferences don't really go that far. And JS Conference, Jesus Con Family always begs to differ, so we have to kind of deliver in all of the platforms with this experience, and that's what's really exciting for me. I don't know many Melbourne developers that aren't excited by good food, so if you guys can nail that, you're halfway there. Yeah, you know, I think uh, if we're going to bring people from all over the country and all over the world, we have to, you know, make them absolutely agree that Melbourne is definitely the best city in this country. So mm. that, that's how Definitely it the best coffee, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, so if people want to get along, even though it's kind of still taking shape and, and there'll be some announcements coming out, well, where should they visit and, and what should they do if they want to head down? Yeah, so um, you can go to cssconf.com.au or jsconfau.com. Uh, we have tickets there. Uh, we have student tickets available, which we do at... Um, we make a loss on, on all of those, actually. But um, So we do those two events, and then we have a third day called Decompress, um, which if you go to cssconf or jsconf, you go for free. But otherwise, it's $20, um, and that just covers your lunch. Um, we have workshops on all sorts of interesting tech stuff, um, from building robots to uh, technical talks to um, just hanging out in a beanbag uh, and, and learning something. So that's quite cool. Sounds pretty good. Uh, ben Carolina, thanks for coming in. No problem. Thanks. Thank you. Digital inclusion. 
is something that we've often spoken about here on Byte. Um, it can be a bit of a vague term. It's got a lot of de- definitions. Um, but about a year ago, a discussion paper was released around research into levels of digital literacy and digital inclusion around Australia. Um, the 2016 Australian Digital Inclusion Index was released last week. It's the most comprehensive study of its kind in Australia, and Professor Julian Thomas of the Swinburne Institute of Social Research led the study. He joins us on the line. Uh, Julian, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, Julian, why, for those of us who might not know what the term digital inclusion actually means, um, are you able to give us a quick description? Sure. Look, uh, what it's really about is the degree to which people are participating online. So the, the very brief background is that, as you know, and as you talk about a lot on the show, everyday life has become increasingly online. The internet is really embedded in, 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 in everything we do, but uh, so it's part of education. It's part of it's it's part of how we go about finding information. It's how we interact with government. It's how we we, we buy and sell things, and and in, to an increasing degree, it's about how we it's 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 where we talk to each other. So digital inclusion is about who is uh, who, who who can you know share the benefits of that, uh, and what we thought would be useful would be to. Um, put some numbers around it to get a better understanding of, of this in Australia. Right, so we, with that in mind, why is it important to have those numbers? What knowledge do we need and what knowledge do we have prior to this? What we had prior to this was a, a, a patchy but useful knowledge base, if I can put it that way. We've had a series of studies of you know, what we call the digital divide in Australia, the people who have access and the people who don't, and that told us for a while that there's a worrying number of Australians who don't have access to the net and don't use it. So what we wanted to do was to go a bit beyond that question of access and in this idea of digital inclusion get at the questions of affordability and what people are actually doing online. So bring all of that together into a single data point, which we can then, and this is what's useful about it, we can then compare that across different states, across different jurisdictions uh, within Australia, and we can also compare it across time so we can see whether this is getting better or worse. Julian, it sounds like a, a really important measure of our um, health uh, as a nation. Is it the sort of thing that um, either uh, state or federal governments w- will get behind? We, we do hear a lot of talk about uh, Knowledge Nation and how important the uh, NBN is to our future, and we, we talk about these themes a lot. Um, is this something that you're getting a, a lot of backing for and um, a lot of interest in? I think there is a lot of interest in it. Governments, as you say, are increasingly concerned about the proportion of our populations which are online, they're moving more and more of their information and services online all the time, as, as we know. But it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's really emerged as a huge issue for Australia as, as we moved out of that, you know, mining boom economy into something new. Where are the jobs of the future going to be? Where are people going to get their education? How are people going to interact? All of these things will depend on a really strong digital society, but we know that we're not there yet. Governments absolutely know that, so we have got a lot of interest from them um, uh, in this, not just 
state governments, but but also we we think it'll be very relevant for local governments as well. Could you talk us through some of the what you think the key measures are and how you even figure out um, how you measure those? Um, yes, well, it, it, it is a challenge. It's a very interesting um, project, and um, you know we've had some terrific um, partners working with us on on this. Uh, Roy Morgan has been a source of our data with their very big surveys of Australian consumers right across the country, which they're doing all the time, and, and Telstra has also assisted us. What we've done is we've we've looked at what we call three dimensions of digital inclusion, access, affordability, and digital ability. And so access is the, is the familiar one. It's probably what people are used to thinking about when they're thinking about the digital divide. Do you have access or not? What sorts of devices do you have in the home? And also because we consume the internet, you know, in, 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 in volumetrically in Australia, we pay for it as we go in terms of data. So how much data have people got? What sort of data allowances? They're all really key questions around access. With affordability, this is a really important one and, and quite complicated. It's about how much we're spending on the internet, but also about what proportion of our income that is. Because we know that while the cost of data might be going down, in fact, the proportion of our incomes that we're spending on connectivity is increasing. So affordability is a really critical measure for us. And then the last one is this this measure of digital ability where we're asking people how confident they are about using the net and we're also trying to gauge what they're doing online, what sorts of skills they've got. And so what our index does is put all of those things together. Uh, essentially, it's like a huge spreadsheet, um, and but it's... But what we can get out of that is is one figure for Australia, which we can see gradually going up over the last few years, and then a whole lot of other data around how different states and regions are travelling in relation to all these different uh, sub-industries, we call them, or the, the, the different dimensions of, of digital inclusion. So, so the raw number itself doesn't by itself mean a great deal, but when you break it down into all these different elements, you can start to see what what's making a real difference and where the problems might be. Mm. And um, do other countries have a similar index number or, or like reference point? And do we know how we stack up next to other countries, like say countries in Europe or North America? It's a great question, and they, the answer is they don't. We wish they did, but they don't. It would be wonderful to compare um, our number with, um, with that of others. We know that there are some similar projects going on um, internationally, so the European Union has been working on an index like this, a little bit like this, for a while, and there are some other examples, but because we collect the data in different ways, we can't compare the numbers directly but what we know from the data that the OECD and other organisations gather around all of these things is that Australia is a fair way behind where we'd really like to be. We're not at the front of the pack on on any of these measures really uh, so we've got a, a, a lot of work to do and of course that's a great stimulus for 
for, for governments and for community and, and, and everybody to do something about it. So with with that in mind, seeing that we're sort of still fairly behind the eight ball as a nation, where do you think within Australia are the kind of, I suppose, crisis points where we really need to work on increasing participation or affordability? Or what, what, what do you see as the most imperative fix out of out of the research that you've done? Sure. Well, there you know a couple of points there, and we were really surprised by the variation across Australia with the results that that we got. Uh, but there is really considerable variation across Australia's social and geographic landscape, if I can put it that way, so that uh, in terms of different parts of Australia, what you see is that some regions are doing very well and some are doing comparatively badly. So we found that when we looked at the Hunter region in New South Wales, uh, that which excludes Newcastle, but is that area around there. If we looked at parts of Tasmania, if we looked at parts of South Australia, northern Victoria, we found scores for our index that were well below those of other areas. We found that some regional cities were doing much better than others. So Wollongong, for example, has scored very highly on our index, but interestingly, Newcastle, not that far away, the other side of Sydney, uh, and, and Geelong near us here in, in Melbourne, has not done so well. So there are lots of differences on a, at a state level. We've seen that Tasmania has actually gone backwards over the period of our analysis so and, and, and is really the only um, state to have done so. So that's, you know, so there's lots of salutary and concerning um, areas and, and, and which really will require a, a closer look and a lot more attention. Digging into all of that a bit further, we can see some patterns where we know that there are a mix of factors driving digital exclusion, if we can put it that way, exclusion. So older Australians are less likely to be connected. That probably won't surprise many people, but then those in the regions more so, employment is a, is a very, and, and employment and also income are important indicators. Uh, so, so what we're seeing is a mix of economic, demographic and social factors which are clearly responsible for the, for the distribution and the big variations we're, we're seeing in, in digital inclusion right across the country. One of the um, findings that did come out there was that, um, for example, older people, um, it's harder to, to reach the same penetration um, as, as it would be for, for younger people or um, um, you know, sort of other, uh, I guess, psychographics. Um, it's kind of... It's tempting to say, um, well, that's just the way it is um, in, in some areas. It's a regional area. It's a, it's a minority. It's um, um, a group that traditionally doesn't respond early or well to, to sort of new things. But I think if you're talking about complex infrastructure like um, health or education or, or so forth, that uh, is a, a, a reasonable um, assumption to make. But we're talking about the internet where you can just pump it over walls and through forests and, you know, into people's hands. Um, how, how hard should we push um, government, um, industry, um, uh, organisations responsible for our, our digital inclusion? How hard should we push them to, to do better? Well, I think we couldn't push them quite a bit harder 
I think this shows us that that we actually all need to push harder. Probably it's not going to be any one of those parties which is going to make all the difference, but we, uh, I, I think we can do a great deal. And the main reason for that, I mean, as you say, it, it is possible to dramatically improve the infrastructure in a lot of those areas. It's also, as we know from not the index itself, but some of the examples that we've talked about of developing digital inclusion, we know that it's possible to make a difference to improve people's confidence. And, we, and the last thing we know for sure is that those populations, those people that you're talking about, have as much or more to gain from being connected as anyone. So if you're in regional or remote Australia, it may be more difficult, but the benefits will be very considerable. Uh, are there particular things that you think we should do straight away? If um, if you could sort of get your hands on it um, and, and do it tonight or tomorrow morning, what, what would you be doing? <laughs> we, I'm sure we could we could fix this. We're, we're, coming, we're coming over, okay? Uh, we're coming yeah, over right after show. We should no, do something about might, this. It might take us most of the night, but I reckon we can do it. The what I think the reports found, what, and what's been very interesting for us is that we think this area of what we've called digital ability in, in broad terms is, is, the, is, is probably the key one. Affordability, of course, is an issue, and that will take some time to fix. But, but digital ability, what, you know, this mix of skills and attitudes and practices, what people are actually doing online is something we know we can do something about. And we think that perhaps in Australia we've with all of the debates around the NBN and so forth, we might have spent a bit too much time concentrating on the infrastructure, worrying about whether it's fibre or something else, and sometimes maybe not enough time thinking about what people are actually doing with the technology, with the connections that they actually have, and are they getting the benefits they, they could. So the kinds of things that we can see working really well in that digital ability space uh, tend to be local, community-based initiatives, programs which are sensitive to the diversity, the cultural and, and, and linguistic diversity of Australia's population, which is, you know, as you know, very considerable, mm-hmm. and, and which, which rely on the resources of the communities themselves as much as introducing new elements. So working with people, one thing we know for sure is that the thing about the internet is that it's, it's, it, 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 the closer people are to it, the more friends and, and family that people have who are using it, the more likely they are to use it themselves. So it's a, you know it's very much a gradual stage, but a, a gradual process, but a snowballing effect, and we can see that happening in a number of the places we've looked at. And uh, I think that's uh, something we can all take away. If, if you know someone out there who maybe not as digitally included as you are, maybe, maybe sit down with them, uh, show them your iPad. Uh, Professor Julian Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really interesting learning more about Australia's uh, digital inclusion index. Um, I, I think we'll watch with interest to see what where it goes from here. 
thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. We've got a few uh, events coming up. I'm going to jump straight into it. Women in Science Australia um, is happening. Uh, it's the first national symposium connecting women in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, maths, and I'm not sure what the other M stands for, uh, taking place on September 13th and 14th at uh, the RMIT Story Hall. Uh, we'll be tweeting out uh, links to uh, get involved. There are uh, various uh, ticket prices for those who feel that uh, prices might be an issue. Um, but, yeah, any, uh, get along. If you're a woman who's interested in STEM, it's mm-hmm. uh, definitely worth getting out. And a related event, or at least in the same theme, is there's a Girls in Tech Australia official launch party next Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. Um, it's going to be at the Calvin Club in Melbourne, which is historically a men's club, and they're going to turn that all around, throw it filled with some feminist steampunk style. Stick it to the patriarchy. I love it. It's going to be so much fun. I'm actually, I'm signed up for that, so if you come along, you're going to come hang out with me, and I think it's going to be a fun one. So, yeah, everyone should go check that guy out, too. That sounds really fun. We have had heaps of fun tonight on the show. It's mm-hmm. gone too quickly. Uh, we are still petitioning for that two-hour show. Um, maybe it will come soon. Uh, thanks for tuning in tonight uh, in our post-radiothon uh, show. Uh, thanks to everyone who called in last week, uh, sent us messages, um, brought their dog by the studio, made cookies for everyone here. We had heaps of fun. Um, we wish we could go for a little bit longer, but um, the response was really nice. Uh, thanks to our guests tonight. Thanks to Ben, Carolina, and thank you to Julian. Uh, we've been buying into it. We'll be back next week. Uh, we can really hardly wait. Have a great night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.